Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Elliot Kleinberg, author of Black Cloud, the Deadly 1928 Hurricane. They took all the white victims and they put them in a mass grave in the city cemetery in West Palm Beach, let families try to identify them, tag them, everything. But 674 black victims were literally dumped in a hole. We'll look at efforts to help shipwreck survivors off of Florida's coast. Early on, when someone wrecked on the coast of Florida, if they were lucky enough to make it ashore, the landscape was inhospitable to say the very least. They had stood very little chance of surviving. We'll also discuss Claude Kirk, the governor of Florida in the late 1960s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. hurricane can be terrifying. The darkened skies, howling winds, and pelting rain can be harrowing. The hurricane of 1928 was particularly devastating to residents of South Florida and was the second deadliest storm to hit North America. Elliot Kleinberg is author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly Hurricane of 1928, now republished by the Florida Historical Society Press. Growing up in South Florida and having actually gone through some hurricanes as a child, uh, by the time I got to the Palm Beach Post in 1987, I thought I knew everything about every hurricane that had struck Florida. Of course, I was completely wrong. Uh, I naturally gravitated towards hurricanes, I believe, because uh, as a Florida native and somebody fascinated with Florida history and everything about Florida, uh, when you talk about Florida, you have to talk about hurricanes. And because they're such a profound event, and because as a journalist, uh, a hurricane is one of the most exciting news stories in the world because you have all that drama in advance that you don't get with an earthquake or a tornado. Of course, once the hurricane hits, it's not a fun story at all. Uh, when I got to the paper in 1987, uh, I was shocked to discover, and I hate to use the word shocked, but uh, I, I was surprised to discover that uh, I knew very little about this tremendous hurricane um, in 1988, for the 60th anniversary of the storm, uh, I was sent out to uh, Belle Glade to cover a commemorative event. And the more I talked to these people, I said, how is it possible that this profound hurricane happened and most of the world doesn't know anything about it? 
1928 hurricane played a pivotal role in Zora Neale Hurston's 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. The storm leads to tragedy for the novel's protagonist, Janie Crawford, while she and her lover, T-Cake, are living as migrant workers in the Everglades. People have no idea that the hurricane in Zora's book was a real hurricane. Now, it should be pointed out that she wasn't there during the hurricane, but she had lived in Belglade before the hurricane. She was in the islands when the hurricane struck. She came back to Florida later, talked to people who had gone through the hurricane. She takes some literary license with the hurricane. She gets a 200-mile-an-hour winds, and she uh, describes a gigantic tidal wave, which isn't exactly how it happened. It was more like a slow and steady rise, which nevertheless drowned everybody because there was nowhere for them to go. Uh, But certainly... uh, in talking about the hurricane and its effect on the black people, the migrant workers in the glades, she was spot on. Today, meteorologists armed with satellite imagery track every movement of a hurricane for weeks before landfall, providing multiple models of possible paths a storm might take. In 1928, storm forecasting was not as sophisticated. As remarkable as it is to imagine now, back then hurricanes would travel through the ocean for days before anybody knew they existed. In the case of this storm, a ship in the Eastern Caribbean came across it, which is always a bad thing, and telegraphed about the storm, and that's the first time they knew about it. It then tore through the islands in just the most god-awful way, because the problem with those islands is they're small targets, so they don't get hit as much as a big place like Florida, but when they do get hit, they get clobbered, and there's no place to run. And this thing just tore up all these little islands in the Eastern Caribbean, And then it got to Puerto Rico. And I always say that if it stopped at Puerto Rico, everybody would be writing books about the great Puerto Rico hurricane of 1928 because it smashed the island from one end to the other, killed anywhere between 600 and probably 2,000 people. The night before the 1928 hurricane struck Florida, weather officials were saying that the storm was not going to hit the state. It made landfall near West Palm Beach on September 16th. Even if good information had been available, Elliot Kleinberg says it might not have made a difference. Well, first of all, to say that they knew that they knew or didn't hear the hurricane warnings presumes that they had a radio, which in 1928 a lot of people didn't. There certainly wasn't any television. Uh, the newspapers, and I'm a newspaper guy, but a newspaper is only as good as its deadline, which is 12 to 15 hours. But the other thing is, even if they knew, where could they go? Uh, if you were out there in those little towns along Lake Okeechobee, you had three options. One was to go west to Fort Myers, which at the time, Highway 27 and and the roads extended to Fort Myers weren't even built yet, so you couldn't go that way. There's a tiny two-lane road along the east shore of Lake Okeechobee, which even today I've made that road. It's not an easy drive. And the only other way to go was towards the coast. Well, you certainly wouldn't go there. And all of that presumes that you had a car, which A, in 1928 wasn't a given, and B, if you were a poor black migrant worker, wasn't a given. So they really literally had nowhere to run. An estimated 2,500 Floridians were killed by the 1928 hurricane, and a disproportionate number of those people were African American. After the storm, white victims and black victims were treated very differently. For health reasons, all of the bodies had to be quickly placed into mass graves. In 1928, uh, a black person was pretty much invisible, and these were black migrant workers from either the Deep South or the Caribbean. In a lot of cases, their boss didn't even know their last name. So there was nobody there to say, where's my son, where's my father, where's my brother? Uh, After the storm, they had to put these bodies into mass graves. And this was a health thing. This part was not disputable. But they took all the white victims and they put them in in a mass grave in the city cemetery in West Palm Beach, let families try to identify them, tag them, everything. 
but 674 black victims were literally dumped in a hole. I mean, they just dug a hole and they dumped them in. Uh, I've interviewed people that said, I think my family's down there. I don't know. Nobody gave me a chance to look for the body before they dumped them in. And then the other great tragedy is that for the next 60 years, this mass grave was unmarked. Now, could you imagine a place in Florida or anywhere in America where there are 700 bodies in a hole, and not just 700 bodies, but 700 victims of one of the most profound events in U.S. history that nobody ever heard of, and they've been in that hole for 60 years that nobody noticed. And at one point, they rerouted a road over so that part of it was over the mass grave. Now, I always say, if these have been 700 white people, or if this hurricane had smashed uh, downtown West Palm Beach and killed 3,000 white businessmen, or if it would have smashed a black tie affair out in Palm Beach, they'd still be talking about it. The unmarked mass grave of Black Storm victims is located at what is now the corner of Tamarind Avenue and 25th Street, about two miles northwest of downtown West Palm Beach. To add insult to injury, in the aftermath of the hurricane, black survivors were forced into unpaid labor to conduct cleanup efforts. Many blacks were conscripted, and that's a very nice word for meaning basically kidnapped, uh, and forced to help with the cleanup, weren't paid, weren't allowed to leave. Um, you know, I remember at one point, the, the first book, the first publisher of the book, uh, the editor called me up and said, uh, who made the decision to put the blacks in one grave and the whites in another? And I said, Phil, you must have been sleeping in history class. Florida was in the Deep South in 1928. I mean, some people find that hard to believe now, but that was a given. And it was a given that blacks were, that whites were allowed to conscript blacks to do whatever they wanted, and the blacks couldn't say anything about it. And so many blacks were forced to clean up and literally collect bodies, help put them in graves. And that brought us to the story of Coot Simpson, who's probably the most profound uh, person in my book, uh, because he didn't die directly of the hurricane. He was conscripted uh, to help clean up. And it, after three straight days, without his family knowing where he was, he said, listen, I got to get back to my family. And the National Guardsman uh, said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And the National Guardsman shot him in the back and killed him. Well, of course, uh, no jury, no grand jury, no coroner's inquest in 1928 was going to do anything to a white National Guardsman for shooting a black man in the back. So I say that Coot Simpson was was a indirect victim of the hurricane, but he was also a direct victim of living in Florida in 1928. A statue depicting a family running from the storm commemorates the victims of the 1928 hurricane in Belle Glade, Florida. Still, the tragedy has been replaced in the national consciousness by other impactful storms such as the Labor Day hurricane of 1935 and more recently, Andrew and Katrina. Although the 1928 hurricane is often forgotten, Elliot Kleinberg says we should remember it because the storm still provides valuable lessons. It's understandable why people forget about this hurricane when the next one comes along. It's the old shiny object thing. Uh, and in the 1928 hurricane, as soon as everybody was, was talking about the 1928 hurricane, then all of a sudden we had the stock market crash, and then we had the Depression, and then we had the Labor Day storm, and then we had World War II. And after a while, you know, people were moving on to other things. Uh, but this was the second deadliest natural disaster of any kind in the history of the United States. And it staggers me that people have not heard of it. People in Palm Beach County have not heard of it. Uh, this killed—the only hurricane that ever killed more people than the 1928 hurricane was the great Galveston storm of 1900 which killed anywhere between 6,000 and 10,000 people. And, you know, I'll tip my hat. That's the, that's the champ. Uh, but this hurricane, the official death toll was 1,836. But even when they established it in 1929, they said, no, we know this is probably wrong. 
it's really probably close. The official death toll was changed on the 75th anniversary in 2003 to 2,500. Not as the result of any new research, but just an acknowledgement that the first number was too low. But then if you add all the people that were killed in Puerto Rico and other U.S. possessions, now you're talking about a hurricane that probably killed 4,000 or 5,000 U.S. citizens. And then if you add in the islands that in the Caribbean that were, they were still tracking this thing in, in Canada, it killed people in New Jersey. So if you add everything together, all the people that this hurricane killed, it probably killed 6,000 or 7,000 people. It killed more people than Katrina. Katrina, you know, people are already, when, when, Andrew, when Andrew was the big thing, and then Katrina replaced Andrew. But you know what? Andrew was a Category 5 hurricane, one of only three to strike North America in the 20th century, and, but it only killed 15 people. Katrina was a Category 1 hurricane, but it killed thousands. So, and then there's this hurricane that nobody's ever heard of, nobody can remember. And there are so many lessons from this storm that can be uh, current today. One, of course, being uh, the bad forecasts. Uh, and, and, and the forecasters now even talk about the fact that that is why we give such a general forecast. We're not going to do what they did back then, which just say, oh, it's not going to hit Florida. Uh, the other thing is, is the great reminder that the biggest killer in a hurricane is not wind, it's water. So that's why you get a Category 5 hurricane like Andrew striking one of the major metropolitan parts of America and killing only 15 people. But you get this hurricane, what did it do? It drowned everybody. A freshwater lake jumping its banks in Florida. Who'd have guessed it? So that, and then the other story, of course, of the 1928 hurricane is the story that we understand right now, which is amnesia. Not long after the 28 hurricane, I'm sure people were on getting back to their lives. And we had uh, Andrew, and after Andrew, we went a long stretch where there were no hurricanes. Everybody in Florida got cocky. Then we had 10,000 hurricanes in two years. And then we haven't had any in 10 years. And the hurricane people and the emergency managers in Florida right now are terrified because they know that people have short memories. And all of those are lessons that we can get from the 1928 hurricane. Elliot Kleinberg is author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly 1928 Hurricane, now republished by the Florida Historical Society Press. Just sit in the dark, singing these hurricane blues. Just sit in the dark, singing these hurricane blues. Just sit in the dark, singing these hurricane This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The 2017 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held aboard the Carnival cruise ship Sensation. It will leave out of Miami on May 18, 2017, with a full day in historic Key West and a visit to the spectacular Mayan ruins in Tulum. The theme of the conference is Islands in the Stream, Exploring History and Archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. Exciting paper presentations and roundtable discussions will take place on board ship before we return to port on May 21, 2017. Information about registration for this very special event is online at myfloridahistory.org. Well, 
Florida's coast has proven to be treacherous for centuries, and efforts to save the lives of shipwreck survivors have developed over time. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, how have these shipwrecks contributed to Florida history? Well, for over five centuries, Florida's thousand plus miles of coastline have uh, laid claim to thousands of lives. As early as the earliest Europeans were coming to Florida's shores, there were storms that were wrecking their ships and marooning those sailors on the coast of Florida. Uh, now, early on, when someone wrecked on the coast of Florida, if they were lucky enough to make it ashore, uh, the uh, landscape was inhospitable, to say the very least. They had stood very little chance of surviving. Uh, an early account of that is the wreck of the ship Reformation. On board was the Quaker merchant Jonathan Dickinson, uh, who wrecked uh, in the uh, southeastern coast of Florida in 1696, and he was actually captured by some of the native inhabitants, and his story uh, is now still in publication, known as the uh, Dickinson Journal. Uh, and he spent months uh, amongst the native peoples and uh, barely survived this account, and that was not uncommon. It was not until the 19th century that there was any concerted effort to employ professional uh, life-saving uh, techniques in order to help these maroon sailors to uh, at least have a chance at survival. Now, remember in the 19th century, the international commerce relied on maritime shipping. So not only was it important to save the lives of these men, but it was commercially important. And the U.S. federal government realized that uh, in the uh, early to mid-19th century. In fact, it wasn't until the 1840s that the U.S. Congress uh, allocated any money towards the purchase of boats and the employment of men to uh, stand guard, essentially, along the coast, uh, the eastern coast of the United States, and that included uh, the southern part, of, the southeastern part of the country, including Florida. Uh, but it was only around $10,000. Uh, it wasn't until after the American Civil War in the 1870s that any uh, major funding was allocated for that effort. And it was in the 1870s that an organization, an agency rather, the federal government that fell underneath the uh, auspices of the Department of Treasury, known as the U.S. Lifesaving Service, was created. And it was centered mostly around the northeastern part of the country. Uh, but again, there were shipwrecks occurring on the coast of Florida. And in this time, at this time in Florida, uh, the uh, eastern and the Gulf Coast uh, was very isolated. There were very few major settlements, and there were very few deep water ports. Now, the U.S. Lifesaving Service, in order to uh, uh, to combat that issue, they set up uh, three types of stations. Now, those were life-saving stations uh, and lifeboat stations. Now, these two uh, first stations employed generally professional uh, uh, sailors who uh, would man the stations year-round. Uh, oftentimes, it was uh, they would uh, add more men to the service uh, during the peak seasons when it was uh, relatively stormy. But the third type of station was known as a house of refuge. And the houses of refuge were very important in Florida. In fact, there were more houses of refuge than any other type of life-saving station. Now, they employed usually one uh, civilian contractor and his family. They lived in this house year-round, and they didn't physically go out and rescue uh, these stranded uh, crewmen when they saw a shipwreck, unlike many other uh, life-saving stations. But instead, they would serve as uh, as the name uh, uh, as the name lends itself as a house of refuge. So if the sailors made it ashore, they had provisions that would allow the sailors to recover uh, and then uh, aid them in getting essentially back to civilization. Now you have here a contemporary account of the role of the life-saving service. 
Yeah, that's right. So the U.S. Life Saving Service was officially created in 1878. But back in 1876, the first five houses of refuges were created along the east coast of Florida. Now, what we're looking at today is a an original newspaper known as the Florida Star. This was published in uh, New Smyrna, beginning as a monthly publication. It later became a weekly publication in the early 1870s. It was published through the 1880s. Now, this is a copy from November of 1878. So this is shortly after the first houses of refuge were, were being built, and it describes the life-saving service. So uh, if we think today, we, we kind of take for granted what the U.S. Coast Guard does. We, we uh, sort of feel that they're always there, but that wasn't always the case. So an article like this would describe to the inhabitants of East Florida what the life-saving service actually did. And I'll read just briefly a quote about what their role was. It says here, quote, In stormy weather, the men patrol the beach, just as the policemen do in cities. They are on the lookout for wrecks, and when a surfman discovers a vessel in distress, he signals to the station where the men all gather. Then the great doors are thrown open, and there's the lifeboat already on a truck, with a rope in front like the old-fashioned fire engine. The men take hold of the rope, and away they go, up or down the beach, to a point nearest the wreck. Into the surf launch the boat, never minding the icy water which drenches them. There's life to be saved, and their hopeful hearts keep them warm." Unquote. So it's kind of fascinating. It gives you an idea of uh, what their life was like. So it was could be somewhat monotonous. They were required, uh, especially after a storm, to patrol uh, oftentimes uh, uh, dozens of miles up and down the beach between the uh, areas or the zones of each uh, house of refuge looking for shipwreck survivors. And of course, if they happened upon one of those survivors, bring them back to the house of refuge and hopefully uh, nurse them back to health and then help them back into civilization. Well, interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Claude Kirk was governor of Florida in the late 1960s. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more about Claude Kirk. He was actually born in California. Uh, He grew up in Alabama. He moved to uh, Jacksonville and got involved in an insurance business that did very well. And I think at that point he decided he wanted to do more than make money. He wanted to become a historical figure and he cast his eyes on a government office and he started out running for the U.S. Senate. He didn't believe starting at the lower levels. That was Dr. Ed Kalina, author of Claude Kirk and the Politics of Confrontation. Claude Kirk was elected governor in 1966 and was the first Republican elected as Florida's chief executive since the 1870s. Dr. Kalina tells me about his broad appeal during his campaign against the Democratic candidate Robert King High. I think he appealed basically along anti-Great Society lines, but also I think there was a strong personal uh, appeal. Uh, Kirk was a very, it was a large man, well over six feet, well over 200 pounds. 
and I think in any joint appearances with Robert King High, who was much smaller physically, Kirk came across as a big, powerful male figure. And I think that was especially appealing, again, in Central and, and, and North Florida. Dr. Kleena explains how his initial popularity was only short-lived. He started off as quite popular, and he did quite well through about the first half of his term. I think he did well uh, through 1967 and 1968, but things began to go wrong for him in 1968 and continued to go wrong in 1969, 1970. Of course, he was overwhelmingly defeated for re-election in 1970. Part of his basic problem was, although he had won in 1966, the Republican Party was still the minority party in Florida, and it took special circumstances for a Republican to win at the, at the statewide level. Those circumstances existed in 1966, and they existed in a couple of Senate contests uh, as well, U.S. Senate contests as well. But by 1970, those uh, circumstances had disappeared. And of course, in 1970, the Democrats nominated a very popular, a very good candidate in Reuben Askew. I asked Dr. Kalina, what Governor Kirk was able to achieve while in office. I think he set out, he, he wanted to be a transformative figure. And one of the interesting things is as soon as he'd won election as governor, he was thinking about trying to be vice president of, of the United States. The problem he ran into was that I think in a lot of areas, he, he, his ability to influence events was limited because in spite of the fact that he won, the legislature was still overwhelmingly democratic, so his ability to get anything done was was quite restricted. He set out to do, I think he would have liked to have accomplished a great deal in education, but he wasn't terribly successful there. Uh, he did get the uh, FDLE established, which was an important accomplishment, but ultimately I think his greatest lasting impact was undoubtedly on the on the environment. He he was truly the first environmental governor, governor who put environmental policy uh, at a at a priority level. Dr. Kalina tells me what happened to Kirk after he left office. He tried to restart his political career. His basic problem was that he had alienated almost as many uh, Republicans as Democrats. So the Republicans were very, the Republican Party in general was uh, quite um, unhappy with him. Uh, so his, his political career was effectively over uh, after 1970, 1971. He did go back into various, I think, uh, business enterprises, but I'm not sure how successful he was in those either. That was Dr. Ed Kalina, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also catch Florida Frontiers as a podcast. Don't miss the Florida Frontiers television series airing on PBS affiliates all over the state. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.